Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Mark Chandler, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome back our special guest, Dr. Michael Carpin. Dr. Carpin, thank you for coming back and sharing with us again today. Very nice to be back, Arch. Always a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Dr. Carpin is a graduate of Gettysburg College with a bachelor's degree, a master's from, degree from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, and a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. He is a 19-year now teacher at Marple Newtown High School, teaching primarily economics and government. He is a very good friend of mine, and um, we share the same <laughs> sense of humor. <laughs> and he's a very good golfer. Jury's he's, out on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's, well, it's a good thing. Dr. Carpenter right. is also the editor of a recently published book on causes of the Civil War that he was the editor of, and it's a very fascinating and interesting read. And he's sharing with us the causes of the Civil War. So, um, and as he said in our first show, it's slavery, but it's much more complicated. It's easy, but also complicated. He was talking to us about the nullification crisis in the first program. So, Dr. Carpenter, if you'd like to pick it up there uh, and continue on, and I have a question that I just thought of. So, you know, if you want to continue. Go for it. Uh, no, okay. we'll, we'll jump in with your questions. In the first program, you were talking about these brothers, the Drayton brothers, and mm -hmm. Tom's writing yeah. a letter about the sadness and remorse that he had mm -hmm. of them at South Carolina have to secede after the election of Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about, you know, the expansion of slavery in new territories or non-expansion. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that South Carolina jumped the gun in seceding from oh. the Union or... Gosh. You know, or was it, you know, or was it the right thing for them to do at that point? Boy, you know, I guess, well, regardless of what I think, I, they thought it was the right thing to do by that point. I mean, you look at the amount of states that seceded between Lincoln's election and his inauguration in March of 1861. I guess that the question is, boy, how do you answer that one? What a, what a good question. That seeing the tremendous amount of action that James Buchanan took on the issue to try and keep the South from succeeding. Uh, I'm being sarcastic right there because yes. Buchanan did, did <laughs> practically nothing. I, You know, it's just, you know, is it just this game of chicken? Like, is it just a, let's let's do this and let's see how far they'll go. Let's see if they go. Because, you know, I'll talk about the wonderful James Buchanan later on. But Buchanan's basic perspective is, yeah, they shouldn't do that. But yeah, can I can I really do anything about it? No, not really. And so how much of an unknown was Lincoln by this point, even as the about to be inaugurated president of the United States? Well, I, you know, I, I'm guessing they thought the timing was right. Okay. Well, I, I didn't mean to take you down that bunny trail. So no. uh, if you want to Good continue question. on, you were talking about the nullification crisis and then the severity and sobriety of this letter that Thomas wrote to his brother. Well, it's also it's the sobriety and it's, it's also the defiance. You know, when he's talking about unscrupulous majorities and all the other buzzwords that are in there, a fanatical and unscrupulous majority, misrule, contempt of law, word and religion, you know, all of these different types of things. So it's, uh, you know, it's really the, uh, the, the, the buffet of, of everything, every aspect of American society and American government up until that point that becomes entangled in this issue of slavery. And I think what, from the perspective of an educator, it hints to what 
is really difficult to begin to broach and teach about this era and where one of, one of the worst things that we can do in history and even a, a, abysmal, awful, terrible institutions like the enslavement of human beings to as best as we can, but at the same time, not necessarily justify, understand the perspectives of the South. And so when he's saying, you know, contempt of law, all of these different types of things, one of the most troublesome things for us to wrap our brains around and acknowledge today when we look at this barbaric institution of slavery, that those who advocated for slavery were very clear in what they thought was a legal justification. And so a guy like Thomas Drayton, who owns a plantation, who has enslaved persons, you know, would say that I am very well, that the institution is legal, that my possession of enslaved people is legal. It is protected under the United States Constitution. And to threaten that practice violates my rights under the United States Constitution, under any law. That you and that's a really hard thing to swallow. That's a really difficult thing to wrap our brains around. But when he's saying that in that letter, that's what he's basically saying, that this movement and the Republican Party talking about limiting, not allowing the practice of slavery beyond the borders where it already exists, that they feel like that they're overstepping their powers on the United States Constitution and taking away the rights of those individuals. It's just, it's troubling. It's, it's hard. It's, you know, we talk about hard history and we have to encounter those difficulties. And that's one of those instances where you just, it's difficult to comprehend. Yeah. Let me ask you, Mike, about the influence of religion it, it, through mm -hmm. either in the, the abolitionist movement or the, the continuum of slavery. And I'm thinking that, you know, we had strong religious faith during mm -hmm. this time period. And, you know, Thomas Stonewall Jackson was a devout, devout Presbyterian. Yep. Yet he yeah. stood, but yet he stood for the institution of slavery. So, yeah. what does how much re, the influence of religion throughout this time period is a part of these causes? Tons. I, I mean, it's one of those things. One of the essays in my book touched upon this issue, and it was based in the work of Mark Knoll, who's a historian who's done a lot on this. And he, Mark Knoll's argument is that the Civil War. I mean, the Civil War is all different types of crises: economic, political, social. You know, you name it. The Civil War hits all of it. Um, Noel talks a lot about the argument of the Civil War as a theological Christ above anything else. And, uh, you, you know, you can, how, how do I, how do I get into this and keep this within one episode? I mean, think of what's going on from the time period of the Constitutional Convention up until the 1830s, the Second Great Awakening, the growth of Protestant faiths all over the United States, you know, that, that, that religion is going to lead to a golden age in America. We can change laws, we change behaviors, we can improve society. And it's no coincidence that many social movements begin to take shape during this time period, temperance movements, emancipation of women, and important to our discussion here, abolitionism. But it's not just social movements who take their foundation from this second great awakening. It's just that even within these religions, so you mentioned Stonewall Jackson and then the Presbyterians, a lot of Protestant faiths, as you know, they all read the same book. They all read the King James Bible, the best-selling book of the 19th century in the United States. But they interpret it differently, both to justify the practice of slavery and to advocate for the abolition of slavery. And you see many 
Protestant faiths in the United States, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, splitting along regional lines during this time period because they can't agree on this issue. And so David Childs is the is the historian who wrote for my volume, and he very uh, very interestingly, and I, you know if you're interested, I suggest you you know get the book and read his essay more in depth. But he discusses in depth these fault lines over the issue of slavery by groups of people looking at the same source document. Absolutely fascinating. It's something I had never really appreciated before. And the abolitionist movement, was that necessarily just a religious movement or just you know a neutral movement in this time it, period? It, it is it, it, all of the above. I, you know, like many things, you get the whole gamut. If you think about people like, you know, William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, you know, they come from the religious end of it. Obviously, the Society of Friends, the Quakers, including one of my favorite stories from this time period, Passmore Williamson, who's the Chester County and Philadelphia guy who helps, who openly, willingly goes to jail to violate the Fugitive Slave Act in the 1850s. So you have those individuals and their religious grounding and all the way to, I I think, of somebody like John Quincy Adams, who wasn't a member, wasn't an active abolitionist, wasn't a member of a religious group per se, but argued the Amistad case, the very famous Amistad case in front of the United States Supreme Court. So you can come from a religious way. And also what you see with the abolitionists is they basically say, and if you think of what's, what's going on in the United States during this time period, and, you know, immigrants are beginning to come into the United States, and there's all this opportunity and all of these different types of things going on, people begin to say, like, this practice of slavery, the very challenging morals aside, like, it's just anti-American. We're about freedom and go where you want and stake your claim and do all these different things. And we're going to have this practice in the United States at the same time. Like, it just it just doesn't wash. And then when you throw the issue of expansion into the West, this is where the newly formed Republican Party is going to get involved in the 1850s. So like many things, there's all sorts of different degrees. But I think what you see is this movement building, 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 and then, gosh, the 1850s. Uh, and this is where I come back. What is your point of no return? What is your point where the die is cast and we're going to have this conflict and you're not going to have compromise on this issue? And the end that Thomas Drayton talks about in in 1860 is inevitable. But the the 1850s is several episodes in its own right for this show. So I I don't know. I don't know how much time we have left or how you want to navigate through that. But I will uh, I will try the best I can. Well, we still have a significant amount of time. So if if you would like to go for it, go for it. Yeah. You know, what what were what happened in the 1850s that made this point of no return? Well, it's the issue of westward expansion. It's the issue of, it's funny, I was actually sitting at Quizzo last night, one of my favorite Wednesday night activities, and uh, one one of the guys on my team said, you know, well, what did, what did James K. Polk do when he was president of the United States? Because these are conversations you normally have when you're playing trivia. And I said, well, he won the Mexican War. So I think that's almost like the starting point. So we win the Mexican War in the in the late 1840s. We acquire more territory. And so as we acquire more territory, obviously the issue of slavery, what do we do here? And so it takes a congressman from Pennsylvania named David Wilmot, students of American history might be a little familiar with the last name, who basically says all of these uh, territories that we've acquired from Mexico, we need to ban the practice of slavery. Now, he is a Democrat. 
that he will eventually be one of the individuals who, who will later found the Republican Party in the 1850s. And so that leads to the Compromise of 1850. And it's funny, you know, we, we, we talk about presidents of the United States here. And if you look at presidential rankings, we've got three presidents in the 1850s. James Buchanan, whose overall ranking we know about, and the other two are Millard Fillmore, and Franklin Pierce. And neither of these individuals are really setting the earth on fire in the 1850s, particularly with their approach towards slavery. So Fillmore signs the Compromise of 1850, which, as you know, brings California into the Union as a free state, allows New Mexico and Utah. Now, they're not states. They want to statehood fairly quickly. And these territories are actually, if you looked at them on a map, they're much larger. You picture New Mexico and Utah on a U.S. map today, the territories are much bigger. The Compromise of 1850, the language is written so that they can basically pick whether they have slavery or not. This issue is going to come up later on. But what really sets this discussion up, what really begins to, to make things problematic? You have this abolitionist movement building through the 1830s and the 1840s. And what is in the Compromise of 1850 that really sets things off? a much stronger fugitive slave law. Whereas for, you know, I would say that northern states who had eliminated the practice of slavery basically didn't recognize, it was basically, we don't care that it's legal in the South, it's not legal here. Fugitive slave law doesn't doesn't provide that option. And so as opposition is growing towards this practice, I mean, this is such a, a fulcrum, such a turning point here. Because what will this much stronger Fugitive Slave Act lead to, leads to lots of things, but what did I say was the the best-selling book of the the 19th century in the United States, the King James Bible. King James Bible. What was the second second best-selling book of the 19th century in the United States? Any guesses? I have no clue. Uncle Tom's Cabin is the is wow. the the second the second best selling book of the and so what so you know obviously there's a lot of and and you know time doesn't allow for there there is a an, an an upheaval of 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 public awareness about this issue and it is this fugitive slave law that inspires Harriet Beecher Stowe to write Uncle Tom's Cabin this book that really tries to you know throw the curtain away from any idyllic genteel depiction of this barbaric institution. See, she shows this practice for all of its degradation, its cruelty, um, its its immorality, and in its first year of publication, it sells 300,000 copies wow. in the United States. And in response to people in the South who say, you know, oh, you made this up. This is totally fictionalized. This is, you didn't base this on anybody. Beecher is able to demonstrate in many instances the reality of many of the people who are in this book. In fact, you know, I think of the character of Simon Legree. One of the books I read this summer was, you know, unfortunately the last book by the great author Tony Horowitz, who, if you've ever read Confederates in the Attic, he was the author of that. And so he wrote a, his last book before his very, very, very untimely passing was where he basically recreated the journey through the South of 
Frederick Olmsted, who later was the, the designer of Central Park in New York City. And he was in the areas of Louisiana where basically the plantation owners there were very much the inspiration. I, I mean, Harriet Beecher Stowe basically changed the names and, and that's all that she did. So that was very, very eye-opening to, to read some of those details. And so Uncle Tom's Cabin really begins to accelerate everything into high gear. And this is where, though before, I don't know if you, if Arch, if you ever heard the name Passmore Williamson, this guy is just one of my favorites from this time period. This is such an unbelievable story. So Passmore Williamson, he's a, he's a Chester County Quaker. He is a very high-ranking person in the Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia. And coming through Philadelphia is an enslaved woman named Jane Johnson. She is with her son. They are enslaved by John Wheeler, who is going south from New York through Philadelphia to Washington to become the U.S. minister to Nicaragua. They have a stopover in Philadelphia. Wheeler and his family go out sightseeing in Philadelphia. They lock Jane Johnson and, and her son in, in their hotel room in Philadelphia. Jane Johnson passes word to somebody working in the hotel, go to the Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Society and get somebody to free us. They get Passmore Williamson and another individual. They run down the docks as John Wheeler is boarding a steamboat with Jane Johnson and her son. Williamson basically says, the law that allows, says the Wheeler, the law that allows you to enslave Jane Johnson doesn't apply here in Pennsylvania. Mm. Jane Johnson, you're free to, and your son, you're free to go if you want to go. Five deckhands on the ship restrain Wheeler as Jane Johnson and her son are fleeing. Uh, and now what happens, and again, Fugitive Slave Act, Passmore Williamson is arrested. He serves around 100 days in Williamensing Prison in Philadelphia. I was just actually, I had dinner on Passyunk Avenue in Philadelphia the other day. And when you go up a little bit from Passyunk Avenue, there's a historical marker there for where, where the site of the Williamensing Prison was. And it's it's very much a cause celeb. Williamson willingly goes to jail. He gets loads of press attention. He has hundreds of visitors. If you go to the website for the Chester County Historical Society, they are in the process of restoring his visitor book. And so all the people who came to visit him signed this guest book, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, you know, the who's who of the abolitionist movement in the 1850s visits him in prison. And it's just one of those things that adds increasing attention to this issue. Just absolutely one of those little known stories, but just one of my favorites. And so Chester County has this uh, significant influence then on mm -hmm. the, this time period that unfortunately... Absolutely. Most of us don't know very much about. So that's no, such it's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. I think they're still raising money for it. So if, uh, I'm sure they have something on there if you wanted to make a donation. I, I love Chester County Historical Society. It's a, a great gang there and, and doing some really important work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, I have a lot of respect for the Chester County Historical Society. Fascinating story. Michael. Uh, so if you continue on with, with another 1850s, you know, we have about yeah. left. What, all right. What, so let's, uh, all right. So let, let's, let's keep going here. All right. So let's keep expanding the United States. So we've gotten the Fugitive Slave Act mixed in. And so basically we're expanding to the West. We need methods of transportation. We're pretty good at moving North and South because of the Mississippi River, but we need something that runs East and West. And so this is where the idea of the transcontinental railroad begins to develop. And so there is a U.S. Senator from Illinois who wants the tra Transcontinental Railroad 
railroad to go through Illinois. But in order to go through Illinois, it also has to go through the territory of Nebraska. And this U.S. senator says, simple. All right. I, I worked on some of the language with the Compromise of 1850, where we let Utah and New Mexico determine their own path in terms of slavery. We'll just do the same thing with Nebraska and that territory to the south. Kansas, it's a nice middle of the road solution. Everybody will be happy. Right? Wrong. Um, who's that U.S. senator from Illinois' name? Uh, Stephen A. Douglas. Yeah, Stephen A. Douglas, Douglas. Who, who, uh, who's going to so, – so so Douglas is going to try this, this middle-of-the-road solution, what becomes the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. I mean, you really want to start to I, – I think of like units of heat when we talk about chilies, chilies and things like that. You know, the, these are – you know, the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act will begin to – will begin to turn up the, the, the temperature here. So, I, I mean, I, and a lot of us know the story here. So it's signed in the law. It's negotiated. It's signed in the law by President Franklin Pierce. Uh, Nebraska will settle as a free state. But, you know, I mean, what happens in Kansas? Uh, I mean, pro and, yeah. and anti-slavery forces flood into Kansas to because the, the basic gist of the bill is that popular sovereignty will determine whether these are, are, these are slave states or free states. And so Kansas literally, I mean, we talk about battleground states today when in presidential elections. You know, let's talk about battleground states in, you know, for yeah. real in 1854 and 18. 1855 when we talk about Kansas. This is where John Brown comes on to the scene here, and some of his activities in Kansas during this time period are well documented. And it really, it does very little to assuage the issue. You know, and the other really important thing that it does here, I mean, it's, this is just like falling dominoes, you know, just one thing after the other, is that in terms of our political parties during this time period, the issue of slavery will divide the Democratic Party to an extent. You'll get different wings of the Democratic Party that will fracture, but it won't destroy a political party like it did to the Whig Party during the 1850s. And this is just one more step in here. I don't know how, you know, to what extent your your listeners have heard or, or, or know about the Whig Party. Uh, the Whig Party had existed since about the 1830s in the United States. It comes off of the era of good feelings under James Monroe, where we we basically had no political parties. The Whig Party is formed in response to the presidency of Andrew Jackson. Whigs were basically people who didn't like Andrew Jackson and thought he overstepped his powers as president of the United States. Uh, they really, they, they truly are a national party. If, if they existed today, as they existed during this time period, they would be closer to the Democratic Party today than the Republican Party, I think, because they were for federal spending going to infrastructure and internal improvements. They were a national party. They had support in the North. They had support in South. They were able to get along with one another because there really wasn't a lot of discussion of the issue of slavery. The 1850s changed that discussion. And because you have sections in the North and sections in the South, they really can't agree. And so what happens to the Whig Party over the issue of slavery is that it dissolves. And so you have pro-slavery Whigs go towards the Democratic Party, have some Whigs go towards, if you, if you know anything about Millard Fillmore, here he is again, and the Know Nothings, the nativist movements of the mid-1850s that were more anti-immigrant than, than anything else. Some former Whigs gravitate towards there, and then the other Whigs go towards this new Republican Party, which is founded in 1854 as an anti-slavery party. Abraham Lincoln, his one term as a congressman in the 1840s, where he 
spoke against the Mexican War. The Whig Party was against the Mexican War. He was a Whig. So he started off his political career as a Whig and then and then eventually becomes a and then eventually becomes a Republican. And from the outset, the, the Republican Party starts to do very well. Uh, they they run a presidential candidate in 1856, but there's a third party candidate. Miller Fillmore runs again on this American know nothing ticket that splits the vote. And so James Buchanan becomes president in the United States, for goodness sake. But the Republican Party will slowly or not slowly, they will they will gain in every they will gain in 1856, they will gain in 1858, and then the the ultimate prize of winning the presidency in 1860 for a you know a political party that's six years old at that point. It's it's a pretty impressive feat. And unfortunately, Dr. Carpen, we are up against the time at this point. So if you would be so kind to come back and continue this discussion and continuing with the causes, because I feel that you are still just scratching the surface with yeah, some information I, you like to I, share. We, with we, we could be here for the next hundred years, but, well. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll definitely come back. Well, we I promise I, I would we would love to have you come back and continue this discussion. But we want to thank you again for sharing your knowledge with our listeners of some of the causes for the Civil War and enlightening all of us that though these issues it's slavery, but there's so many more things that need to be looked at and discussed along the way. So thank you so much for coming and sharing with your knowledge to our listeners again today. And we look forward to having you back. I look forward to coming back, Arch, always. Thank you so much for doing this with us, Dr. Carpin. Please, listeners, also look for Dr. Carpin's book, Causes for the, the American Civil War, and it's just recently been published. So this is WFYL 1180 AM, Working for Your Liberty.